Hello, it's Paul Scott here on Saturday the 29th of April 2023 doing my last podcast from Gozo, the island, tiny little island off Malta in the Mediterranean. I've been here for the whole of April being a digital nomad, I think the term is, where you just rock up with your laptop, sign on to the Wi-Fi and work uh, in uh, somewhere really pleasant and rural, uh, lovely slow pace of life here in Gozo. Beautiful views, uh, lots to see and do, but uh, yeah, as I say, I've been half working, half um, relaxing, so it's been wonderful. Um, right, so yes, for people who don't know me, I'm Paul Scott, I'm a, uh, I've been a small caps investor and analyst for about 25 years, self-employed, and I also write the um, small cap value reports on stockopedia.com, which is the focus of this first podcast, where I'm just going to rattle whiz through the what, what the news we've covered during the week is in UK small caps. And then uh, the second part of the podcast is more sort of overview of the markets and macro news and views that I've jotted down on my pad as, as the week progresses. So right, Monday's uh, small cap value report then. Um, this would be the 24th of April. Now I wrote up um, some thoughts on delistings. Obviously we've, um, this is where companies that are listed on the stock market often very suddenly announce they're, go- they're going to delist, which requires, I think I'm right in saying, a 75% vote of the shareholders, a special resolution in company law to authorise it. Now, basically, companies delist really for two fundamental reasons. The first one is that it's just too small and and, and not viable financially. So the first reason is micro nano caps, where they just announce, look, this hasn't worked. It doesn't make sense incurring all the costs of being a listing. So we're going to transfer from being a public company to a private company. Now, that normally triggers a 50% drop in share price. And then you usually see a, a period of extreme volatility in the share price between that date and the date of the actual delisting. I think traders jump onto these things because they know there are going to be big, big uh, intraday moves, which often don't make any sense at all, I should say, the price movements. Uh, and there we go. So you can see these things. You can see these in advance. It's obvious if a company, you know, all you look at is, well, is the market cap below about 20 million? If it is, then why is it listed? You know, you have there really has to be a sensible reason why the thing is listed. And can it afford to be listed? So, um, I mean, it's an expensive business maintaining a stock market listing. I've uh, spoken to a few companies on this front, and the minimum seems to be about 200,000 a year, pounds. And one small cap that only had a market cap of about 6 million told me that all in, and this was a full listing that particular company had for some bizarre reason, for all in, with the NEDs and with um, a, a fully listed company secretarial uh, service, he said the costs were about a million pounds a year. A million pound a year for a five or six million pound market cap. That was actually Seraphine, which did uh, delist, but it did so through a 200% premium uh, takeover bid. So I, I got lucky on that. It turned out all right. Um, so really, if a co- to, to, to just, I think, to give you some general ideas for how you can spot a company that's going to delist, number one, very small, tiny, micro, nano market cap. Secondly, if it's loss-making. If it's losing money, then how on earth can it justify the expense and even the cash of um, paying a minimum of 200000 a year to, to be listed? 
Uh, and obviously the market's almost dead at the moment. There's just no liquidity in the market generally um, at the moment. It's horrific, um, the small cap space, I think. Pr- pretty much the worst I've ever seen. But, but I, you know, it was like this in 2002, for example. It just bumps along the bottom after a, a, a very bearish phase in small caps. And then gradually confidence comes back. And a year later, you can often find that the market's flying. So I think you've got to remember these things are cyclical. Now, the other reason companies delist is where you've got an overly dominant shareholder. And this was really brought into sharp relief by uh, iEnergizer, ticker IBPO, I think that's the right name, where (coughs) a lot of, yes it is, I've just seen it on the screen, a lot of people were really shocked by, you know, this is a company with a five or six hundred million market cap. So how could you have predicted that something that size would announce suddenly out of the blue that it's going to delist? Um, and the company had been listed for about 13 or 14 years on AIM, and it had paid generous dividends, so there was really nothing there to predict that it would suddenly uh, announce this delisting, other than that two NEDs suddenly resigned, I think in uh, about a month before it announced it was going to delist, and then two new NEDs came on who were closely connected to, and this is the main point, the massive majority shareholder. IBPO, the founder and CEO, I think he is, owns 83% of the company. Well, that's mad. You know, you don't need a listing if you own 83% of the company. So why it had a listing at all, I have no idea. Perhaps he was hoping to get, uh, you know, an excessive valuation out of it and then sell the remainder of his holding. I have no idea. But anyway, it didn't make sense um, having a listing in the first place. And I think a good rule of thumb is if there's a dominant shareholder or, or a concert party, dominant concert party, that own more than 50% of any share, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't go near it. But, as friends have pointed, and certainly 83% is ludicrous. I mean, the AIM rules need to change. You know, you can't have companies floating where the free float is only 17%. It's ridiculous because it's wide open to abuse. Because, of course, the 83% shareholder can pass a special special resolution on his own. He doesn't. So there's no uh, shareholder democracy whatsoever. So I think the rules uh, urgently need to be changed or just don't buy any shares where where there's a, a massively over-dominant major shareholder. That's my general rule. General rule. I've, 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 I can't recall ever really investing in anything where there's been a major shareholder with over 50%. Some friends did flag up to me, though, Goodwin and VP, which are both very good companies that do have a dominant shareholder. I think the founder at VP owns 50%. Uh, and Goodwin, the Goodwin family, control the business. <clears throat> but in those cases, they're both fully listed. So perhaps there are... I haven't got the time to look up the difference between AIM and fully listed. But anyway, so delisting's big issue on Monday that we discussed. We have some good reader debate on that as well. Now, Graham looked at Lock and Store, Mind Gym and Check It. <clears throat> so see Monday's report if you're interested in those. I made a brief comment on Spectra Systems, SPSY. The CFO suddenly left abruptly... We had a very good reader comments on this as well. Thanks to some of our regulars, including Samoan, Abtan and Timar, who had very interesting back and forth on it. And they kept it civil as well, which we like. So thanks, guys, for your very interesting thoughts there. Now, Card Factory, C-A-R-D. This uh, has done very, very well. I've written really positively about this share. It's one of my favourites. I think it was on my top 20 watch list for this year, actually, and it's done, it's done well. Now it's raised profit guidance again. This is, I think, about the third time for Card Factory. It obviously does the retail stores that sell greetings cards, but also 
gifts, um, uh, little um, you know, gift packaging and teddy bears and chocolates. So they're broadening the product range, and it's all high margin, very high margin stuff, because it's vertically integra- integrated. Card Factory manufactures its own cards. So it gets the full profit margin right from basically a bit of cardboard and some ink right the way through to a full selling price. So it's an, it's actually really surprised me on the upside over the last year or two, Card Factory. I did have reservations about its balance sheet. I don't anymore. I haven't had for a while because it's um, generating so much cash. So really, really good share, Card Factory. Um, <clears throat> Now, the latest upgrade from Card Factory happened well after its year end. So you've got to bear in mind, and I think they've upgraded guidance by profit guidance by about 10% again. Now, you've got to bear in mind when you get an upgrade significantly after the year end, that's down to audit adjustments. It's not down to having that they've traded better than they expected because they already know how they've traded. It means they've probably been a bit too conservative with the uh, provisions and they can release some of them. Don't get me wrong, it's a good thing to be saying, actually, no, we've made four million more than we thought we've made. That's wonderful, but it can be it can be down to things that are non-trading. And in particular, the IFRS 16 entries need careful scrutiny because I think you're going to see a lot of profit being booked into the P&Ls as, as the right-of-use assets, difficult to say, are, are increased again in value from the very bombed-out levels that they were written down to during the pandemic. Now, this is artificial profit. I'm not saying that's what's happened with Card Factory, but I'm saying generally be on the lookout for these IFRS 16 entries, which I think are going to be flattering profit and balance sheets from this point onwards. Now, what else have we got here? Uh, oh, Medica, MGP. I'm pleased to say that I flagged this up, I think, about three weeks ago in these podcasts as being an interesting share to research after Ken Wooden mentioned it in several uh, podcasts that he did. I, I listened to the one um, on CityWire. I think he also did one with Paul Hill at uh, Vox Markets. And he was talking up the, the shares that they were not talking up, but talking up the strategy they had at Gresham House, where I think he was. And he flagged up their biggest holding as Medica, which they thought was would receive a buyout. And it has done. So um, I think he's a very shrewd cookie and worth following in future because he's uh, pr- very much proved himself um, to uh, the blogosphere with this particular thing on Medica. And I looked at Medica. I remember walking back from Malsalfon to my villa, to my penthouse here in, in Gozo and thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. I must look at it when I get home. And I did. And I thought, yeah, I think Medica looks very good. Good structural growth company, modestly priced. That, that was his simple criteria. And uh, he got it right. And I'm glad I flagged it to readers, listeners here, because I believe several of you bought it after the tip. So... That's good. Now, that deal for Medica has only got 20% support, so it's not a done deal. And there's only one institution, funnily enough, which is the biggest hold aggression house who want to, obviously want a liquidity event. But I think it may not necessarily go through to completion, that deal, because it's going to need more institutions to support it, which they've declined to do so far. Now, um, Central NIC I had a look at. Um, I had been turning positive on this due to some really, really good news flow, but <clears throat> I have to say, on a closer look, um, even though the up- latest update was sounded OK, I looked at the 2022 numbers, um, and I'm just not happy with the numbers on Central, Central NIC. It's got an awful balance sheet uh, with heavily negative net tangible asset value, 
a very weird situation where there's a massive cash pile but massive interest-bearing debt, which doesn't make sense, suggests to me that maybe the year-end cash figures uh, window-dressed. But anyway, so I've I've gone a bit mm, yeah, not sure about this on Central Nick. The good news is I'll be able to chat to management. They're appearing at Mellow Chiswick, which is obviously David Streder's long-running investment show. has a different model to the other investment shows where... Uh, the, you, you pay to attend, but um, it's got very good speakers, as the others have, but you haven't got a room full of 40 dubious mining shares trying to sell you the hole in the ground with the proverbial standing at the top of it, which is basically, and you could argue some, some of the other investor shows are almost protection rackets, you know, pay a four or five grand fee for a stand or we'll put out a bear note on you you know that's how it used to be anyway i'm not sure that's necessarily the case now but um i like the business model of mellow i would say i think if you don't support mellow at chiswick this year it could be the last one i mean david streder i was chatting to him the other day he's finding it very difficult to persuade companies to come and actually meet investors face to face which is such a pity because we we need to be doing that. I think it's, you know, yes, online is good for webinars, but there's no substitute for actually standing there chatting to directors. So I shall be at Mellow for both days, and I'm looking forward to meeting the directors of Central Nick. They'll probably win me over, because I'm pretty gullible when I meet people face-to-face. But um, that's why I don't normally buy things um, immediately after meeting companies. I need usually a few days to cool off, and, and start thinking about all the negatives, and then you usually think, nah, they're good salespeople, but actually the show's not that good. <laughs> now, on Monday, we didn't cover Re- React, R-E-A-T, this micro-cap uh, acquisitive specialist cleaning company. Um, I've got concerns over that. I don't think they can get the equity price up to a level where it's worthwhile than making more acquisitions. So chicken and egg on that one, although the underlying business looks okay. And also Christie, um, I think that CTG put out a good update. I just didn't get around to looking at that. Sorry about that. Now, Tuesday, I'm afraid, 25th of April, I malfunctioned on that day. I just couldn't get into it. And we had a, a huge long list. And unfortunately, it was just an off day for me. So sorry about that. But Graham looked at JUP, which I think is Jupiter Fund Management, uh, 716 million market cap um, fund management share, SMV Smooth. Possible offer on that one, but I think the figures look a bit grim on that. I need to have a look at that one myself. Uh, ABDP, uh, that's the uh, car, what do you call it, uh, engineering uh, group, group, isn't it? Uh, 395 million market cap. Graham looked at their interims. So, oh, sugar, is that recording? Oh, no. I think I might have run into technical problems again. Let's, uh, last time this happened... Ah, the time is still going, so I'm not going to start shouting and swearing. Uh, I'm just going to assume this is still working. Okay, let's press pause, see if that does anything. Yeah, I think that's working again. Sorry about that. Right, Wednesday 26th of April 2023. Uh, Let's have a quick look. Uh, Actually, we covered a lot on this day, didn't we? Yeah, um, Graham looked at Nichols. That's this drinks group that he likes. I don't really see the attraction of that if I'm... uh, uh, going to maybe question Graham on that. Um, he also looked at Elementus, um, £700 million chemicals company. Now, I looked at Persimmon. It's Q1 update. Even though uh, four, four odd billion um, market cap, I, I always look closely at the mid-large cap house builders because so much in our economy hinges on 
what happens with house building. And um, I thought it was quite good. And also I thought, hang on, this is a good update. The shares of Persimmon are bombed out. I think it could actually rise. So I got a, uh, my view out just before 8am, which I try to do if I spot anything that might be price sensitive, good or bad. <coughs> and But we can only pick one company for that each day and only if we're up first thing. Because we spend about half an hour making the to-do list and just quickly reading um, the summaries and so on. So, But so Persimmon, I was quite pleased by that because for people who d- did jump in first thing, you made 5 or 6% on the day which I think is very good. Basically, the house builders are saying that things um, obviously were clobbered with the mini-budget causing a hiatus in October last year. <coughs> but ever since, <coughs> excuse me, there are, there are encouraging signs of recovery. So it's increasingly looking likely, and selling prices are holding up, and are still up year on year. So the volumes are down um, so far in 2023 for house builders, but the margins on each unit are still pretty good. They're cutting costs, they're scaling back uh, build schedules. They're both also saying, because there was another house builder, I think it was Taylor Wimpy that reported this week, they're saying that build cost inflation has peaked at about between 8 and 10% and is now showing signs of moderating. So there's a lot. I think that the, the cycle for the house builders could now be, well, it looks like it is turning back up again. Obviously, it'll take a while for it to get back to where it was, if at all. But uh, I think you've, we've seen the worst from this sector, and it looks very interesting. So I've, I've mentioned this a few times in recent months. I would urge uh, listeners to have a fresh look at the house builders. And um, uh, there's good value there, I think, selectively. Although some of them have already recovered a lot. But Persimmon struck me as interesting because it hasn't. Uh, recovered very much and they've all got great balance sheets this is the thing which is completely different to previous recessions so you don't have to worry about solvent solvency or leverage or uh, liquidity at all okay moving on and linked to this brickability um this is the bricks distributor with a dropship model which i think has performed very well actually since it listed i had a quick look at this and uh, yeah i'm impressed i think it's another ahead of expectations update Forward PE is only 5.9. I think that's too cheap. And um, <clears throat> you're looking at PEs of 10, 11, 12 for the house builders, but they are very strongly asset-backed. The key difference to brickability, much cheaper on a PE basis, but it's not asset-backed. So do bear that in mind. Um, and it kind of hints in the Outlook comments that maybe there might be some softening in demand at some point, which you would expect, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you? I mean, the house builders are have slowed down their build programmes, so you would expect that to feed through to uh, lower demand for bricks. But it hasn't happened yet, but maybe it still will do. But I think on the basis, uh, I think the valuation, the forward PA, only only 5.9, I think that's very good value. We try to look at big movers as well, and learning technologies, LTG, dropped 16% down to 109p, uh, 861 million market cap. We tend to go up to about a billion in the small cap value reports, but we can't cover everything. So big movers are usually high up the to-do list. And Graham looked at this one. He came out amber on it. Um, the trouble is the, the results were in line, but um, the outlook statement is, is, is a profit warning. And Graham feels that this was uh, rather concealed in the update. And we're looking for company, but obviously the market saw through that. But I think we'd prefer it, as Graham's commented here, if it's a profit warning, just deliver the profit warning in in a straightforward manner. Don't try to buff it up and PR spin it so that nobody will notice. It just leaves people feeling cheated uh, if they read the RNS and thought that everything sounded fine 
and then realised later in the day that the broker forecasts have been reduced and, you know, um, <clears throat> it's all been um, that they've been misled in a way from not reading the, uh, the, the update carefully enough. So I don't like that sort of thing. It's poor, uh, poor show. Now, I looked at one of my favourite shares of the year, Warpaint London, W7L. This is a makeup company. Really simple. I'm green on it. I really like it. Don't hold it personally, unfortunately. Uh, my interview back in January was very well received. We got a lot of compliments for that. Without straightforward, the, the CEO, Sam Bazzini, uh, is just straightforward, down to earth, entrepreneurs who own a managers who own about half the business sam and his uh, business partner and um <clears throat> anyway the latest trading update is another beat even better q1 performance than was indicated about a month ago it's got a lovely balance sheet generates plenty of cash and reasonable dividends it's just the simplest investment case wall paint is they make products that customers like makeup products uh the customers repeat buy the products and they're selling more of them into larger retailers. They're just gradually winning uh, contracts with co- that typically start off with a test range in a in a in a in a trial number of stores, small number of stores, and and, and one after the other, these trials are being followed up with a rollout to more of the retailers' stores. Often, many more. A good example of that is Tesco and Boots, but it's doing this internationally as well now and the product's selling well internationally. So it's the simplest business model. You don't have anything to analyse. All you, all you have to do is see that they're selling more product through more retailers and more stores. Therefore, it's growing. All organic growth, uh, very, very good. Not cheap, but uh, I don't think the valuation is excessive. It's £2.10. I think you'll get more, probably more earnings beats as the year goes on from Warpaint. So I think if you're just patient, okay, yes, you're probably paying top whack at the moment, a PER of about 18 or 19 or 20, but it'll probably beat those earnings forecasts. And if you just sit there and do nothing for a couple of years, I think you'll be sitting on probably a share that's north of £3, so maybe 50% upside on that one, without doing a thing, without having to do any guesswork. I think it's a very attractive, very simple investment case. I'm hoping to buy some when I've got some cash and on, on a dip, I think. So, yeah. I can't see anything wrong with, with wall paint at all. Just some brief comments I made as well. Touch star TST. I'm keeping an eye on this. Uh, it's 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 growing, but not fast enough. But anyway, it's got plenty of cash, 41p a share cash, and it's just can, uh, reduced its share premium account. So that clears the deck for it to pay dividends or, or maybe do a buyback. But it only made 422 grand pre-tax profit with the last results so it's too small for me want to, to want to get involved at this stage but i'll keep an eye on it polarin imaging polx has been a disaster so i just comment on this one um uh why was it oh first commercial sale of one of its special gas cylinders for mri scanners um it's strange this one you know investor uh, investor sentiment was so strong before it got its fda approval there were just loads of traders in it saying, oh, it's going to go to the moon when it gets FDA approval. That was It, it was about a pound a share. It got FDA, FDA approval, as planned, and it's dropped down to 20p. So, isn't it incredible? But there we go. I think it's been handled badly by the management as well, who've uh, flagged up too early that it's going to, and made too much a deal of the fact that it's going to need cash. And that, I think, has spooked a lot of people. But I think it's just weight of numbers. I think a lot of speculators bought the shares, expecting it to go up on FDA approval. Then when the news actually came out as expected, 
it spiked up 30-40% in a day, but came right back down again. So, of course, what happens then? All the speculators just all rush for the exit, don't they? It hasn't worked. Let's get out. And I think it's just been just a downward spiral since then. But, you know, as a value investor, I think at this valuation, actually, I'm much more, I think it's much more interesting at 20p than it was at a pound. So um, might be worth a fresh look, Polarin. I don't know. Eagle Eye, I have bought some of these and I've topped up more recently again. Not my usual sort of thing at all. It's a software company for supermarket loyalty schemes. The good news flow just keeps coming with this company. It's got really, really impressive clients who are very sticky clients. Um, <coughs> and it's winning client, big name supermarket clients all over the world. I think this is one of those very rare things with um, a small cap where it's on aim. It's something genuinely world class, I think. And it, Eagle Eye has reached profitability. The main question mark is management greed. Um, people have flagged up to me that they're taking too much out in bonuses, salaries and share schemes. So that's worth a look. I've never seen any actual correlation mathematically, though, between corporate greed and what the share prices do. It'd be interesting. We all recoil in horror and berate management who are greedy, but has anyone actually studied the correlation between that and share price performance? I don't know. I'm just asking the question. I think it would be interesting to find out how that correlates in the UK. I've seen plenty of companies do very well where management have lined their pockets with option schemes and the like, so... I don't know. Oh, I should also add with Eagle Eye, and remember it is something I hold, so there's uh, going to be unconscious bias there. Or maybe conscious bias, because I like it so much I bought it. I don't know. But anyway, you do have to think about the valuation there. It's, it's difficult to justify the current valuation on traditional value metrics. Okay, moving on to um, Thursday, 27th of April. I reviewed the accounts which came out the previous day, but it missed the, the, the 1pm cut-off. I reviewed the accounts of Sanderson Design Group, SDG. Now, as regulars know, this is one of my favourite uh, companies. I really rate the CEO there, Lisa Montague. Uh, did a fantastic interview with her last uh, autumn. Uh, I was going to ask her back for a, for a second interview, but I can't really see the point, because the picture's the same. We know what the strategy is. I think it's a good strategy. They are focusing on doing licensing deals, which is almost 100% margin. And in a way, I could ask the question, if I do interview her, isn't the rest of her business just an overhead? <laughs> because the licensing revenue is the high-quality uh, part of the profits, and I think it's over half of the profits now come from licensing. Um, so, And there's the, the, the more deals in the pipeline, particularly an interesting heritage deal with old Disney-related designs from the 1930s. Uh, so that could be that could be very interesting, couldn't it? And also with the licensing deals, they book the minimum guaranteed uh, amounts, and you've then got upside from products selling better than expected. So I think Sanderson Design Group's cheap still. It's a PE of about nine. There is a question mark though over the fabrics and um, fabrics and wallpaper side of the business, which is the main revenues manufactured digitally printed in the UK. Um, Demand for some of their brands has dropped quite sharply, uh, but they've been able to put through price rises successfully twice last year, so the margins are maintained. Uh, I think Lisa's running a very tight ship, Lisa Montague. She's running a tight ship there, so I like Sanderson Design. I wouldn't rule out the... Not that it's my place to rule anything out, but I think you've got to bear in mind there is a risk of a potential profit warning, I think, at some point with Sanderson Design Group. Really, it's really licensing and 
the Morris & Co. brand and growth in America saved the, saved the day for the January 2023 accounts, I think. Other parts of the business are struggling a bit. So I'm not 100% confident it's going to necessarily perform in the short term. But I think, you know, I look long term. I'm always thinking two years plus, basically, with my fundamental analysis of companies. And I think shareholders, I believe, should do very, very well on a two year plus time span with SDG. I'd like to buy some myself, but it means I've got to sell something else, unfortunately, and there's nothing I want to sell right now. But I, I'm planning on, if there's a significant dip, and I mean, it's the type of company, if Samsung does put out a profit warning, I'll be celebrating and piling into the market. Because um, I've done that before. I bought them right at the low of the COVID, at below 50p, and it, and it worked out very well. Sold them for three or four times that. So with good quality companies, with good balance sheets, you know it's safe buying after a profit warning. That's often your best buying opportunity. But it depends. Every situation's different. Graham did full sections on international personal finance, which I think he likes. And he also did PPHE, which is a hotels group. Uh, does look interesting, but he's got some reservations about the uh, performance there. I did quick reviews on a few more companies. Now, remember, these may not interest you, uh, but it's a Stockopedia. So it's a, a, a it's a resource where you can look up um, material that we've written about any company you like. And we've, we cover over 500 companies in the small cap value reports, myself, Graham, and occasionally Roland. So you might think, oh, why is he writing about that company? It's to get it into the system so that people have got something to look up which uh, uh, people find very useful, I think. And I do. It's my, the small cap value reports are my notes. So I refer to them uh, when I want to look back at any company because I can remember a lot about companies, but I can't remember all the ins and outs on over 500 companies. So I just go to the stock report, click on discussion, and there are my notes and other people's comments on it, of course. So I, I looked at Taylor Wimpy, another mid-cap house builder, very similar um, comments to uh, Persimmon. You know, it's seeing signs of recovery. So that's good. Creo Medical, I looked at. Almost went bust, but did a big fundraise. So it's okay for cash for the time being. But very high risk, I think, because it's just burning cash prodigiously. So there's nothing I can value Creo Medical on. So I just put that those comments into the system. So now, what's this? 4 Global, 4 GBL. I'm amber stroke red on this. It's a tiny, obscure software company relating to sports but I wouldn't uh, I was expecting to just go oh this is rubbish red but actually I went through it in a little bit more detail and I thought mm, this might be might be interesting for speculators that one Hotel Chocolat I don't like this one I'm sorry it's another profit warning HOTC the shops that sell uh, overpriced uh, fancy package chocolate and um, I tried out their hot chocolate drink, and it was—it was—I didn't taste any different to that stuff you get in Cadbury's in a in a in a jar, and you just scoop it into the cup and pour boiling water on it. So I think Hotel Chocolat is 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 absolute rubbish. It's in, it's international expansion totally flopped, uh, and it's now put out another profit warning. Instead of making five and a half million profit, it's going to do break even for year ending June twenty twenty three. But as I've said here, the announcement reads like it's a triumph. I mean, it, this reminds me of Super Dry and um, other similar things where you get permanently upbeat commentary but lousy figures. But anyway, the story with Hotel Chocolat is that they're going to have a transformational year in June 2024. Margins are going to shoot up. 
the, bro- the profit forecasts don't look realistic to me. Is to go from break-even this year to 18.5 million profit next year. I just don't believe it. I mean, it'll be if, fine if they can achieve that. That's great, and shareholders a bit will, will do well. But why it's valued at 217 million for a company that's only trading at break-even and a company that's really badly managed? I have to say, judging by its historic performance, well, you can't get rid of the management because they own half the business. So not for me, Hotel Chocolat. But good luck to holders. You could be proven right, but why not invest in a company that's already performing well? rather than investing something that's performing badly and just hoping it's going to improve. I don't get that. Readers asked me to look at RWS Holdings, which uh, has a market cap of around a billion. Much to my surprise, I thought this looked very good, so I'm green on it. Um, It's got a modest um, market cap. It was a very mild profit warning. It's got net cash. I think it looks good, worth a look. My main reservation with this, this is the patent... Uh, complicated legal services related to patents and translation and so on. I do worry, will AI uh, strip away a lot of their business and profits? I think that's probably why it's on a value rating. Naked Wines, very similar to Hot Chocolate and Super Dry, I would say. A business model that hasn't really worked, where they relentlessly talk up the prospects, adjust out anything inconvenient. So I looked at the um, trading update here, which I think is mixed. The big problem with this one is the inventories are sky high. They say those are reducing now, but through a footnote, they slip through the point that they've increased the bad uh, provision against inventories from 8 million to 14 million. I reckon that could be the tip of the iceberg, you know, because you don't know with wine, do you, until you open the bottle? Is it corked? Has it gone off? Does it taste disgusting? You know, I think it's very high risk, this one. Well, not very high risk. Uh, it's got net cash of ten million, but I'm pretty sure that's the customer's money, not the company's money. So, I wouldn't go near this until the the full year results come out. Um, there are too many question marks at the moment. That's a March twenty three year end. The trading updates can hide a multitude of sins, and I think the 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 full accounts will be the bit that's worth looking at. I think uh, fundamentally, it's not a very good business model. They're saying the payback on their marketing spend is 1.6 to 1.8 times over five years. Well, that's a rubbish return. It's it's not worth trying to get more more customers. You you might as well just let the business slowly wind down and keep your your whale customers. You know the highly profitable ones. So Naked Wines, it's an I'm afraid. So I'm red there. I looked at another brick. A company Ibstock on Thursday. I like that. I think it's good. I think the whole sector is interesting. You've also got Forterra, uh, Michaelmersh Brick, and Brickability. So yeah, worth having a look at that sector. I think. Friday, I'm over the file size limit, so I'm going to have to really rattle through this. Well done to R. Graham. He's been saying for a while now, uh, repeatedly, that Numis is cheap, and it got a. 70-odd percent premium takeover bid. So good call there, Graham. I looked at Focusrite, Tune. I think that's looking interesting. It's dropped a lot. I think it's now into value territory, so I like that one. Castings, a good update from there. Uh, Quite a few other things, but I haven't got time to look at them. Nothing stunning. Mears looks good. MER, I like that one. And TPX, TPX Impact, be careful on that one. Big contract wins, but it's still in a really precarious financial position with its bank so don't get too carried away with that okay got to wrap it up thanks for listening and um part two will be up shortly after this bye